Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, all the fallout from Japan. Miller does another thriller. Mistakes creep in for our title contenders, of which none of them finished on the podium. There's Moto2 news, there's 2023 calendar news, and you guessed it, we're straight into another Grand Prix weekend preview as MotoGP returns to Thailand for the first time since 2019. The recording date is Tuesday the 27th of September. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever is Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Well, it was indeed Jack Miller who won the Japanese MotoGP in dominant fashion. However, I think it's fair to say Ducati's day ended in disappointment as Pekko Banyai crashed out on the final lap. But the first question I have for you, Keith, comes from one of our listeners, Jesse. How did Jack Miller just find a way to dominate in Japan after starting down in P7? Hi, Jesse. Good question. There'll be a lot of people asking that one. Um, the point being is that he had pace right from day one. Um, it was on a setting that actually worked for him. First dry session, it actually worked straight away. Miller looked good all the way through. It, <clears throat> Pete actually, I think, chose him for the win in the wet. But um, where that dry pace came from, I think everybody's still scratching their head over it. And it wasn't just dry pace. It was incredible dry pace. He got everything over everyone else. I mean, when you haven't been to a track for so long, when you don't have the data, up-to-date data, with all the changes that have happened to the bikes in, the, in that particular time, you sometimes land on a setting that actually works. You know, when you turn up at a racetrack, any racetrack, any level you like, club racing all the way through, and you turn up at a racetrack, and as soon as you get on the bike, the bike feels right. And, and, and you're making minute changes to make it a little better all the time. You're not chasing your tail because you're millions of miles off of it like so many were at, the, at, the, at this weekend. So Jack Miller, whatever the setting was, he, whatever they rolled it out the crate, it's, you've got to remember Motegi, it came off the back of Aragon. The, the bikes were packed to Aragon, sent all the way over to Japan, uncrated. They weren't even sure they were going to get them in time for, for free practice on, on Friday. Uh, I think they'd altered the schedule in readiness for people to be behind the game. But in the end, they could have kept to the normal schedule. But it's always tricky, Motegi. I mean, the weather can be scorching hot, chucking it down with rain, blowing a gale, of course, because there's another typhoon that blew through. You know, at one point, it looked like we may not have a Japanese Grand Prix. You've got problems with the road infrastructure from there. Great to drive on if you've got enough time and you're coming across, you know, Matey in his Johnny car, three foot long, two foot wide car that's blocking up the road. You're not allowed to overtake anywhere. It's all at 50 kilometers an hour. I mean, it's it's an hour's drive from any reasonable conurbation into the hills. Um, so you you immediately have problems with things like helicopters that can't fly when the fog's down at a certain level and so on. There's such a lot of infrastructure that can go wrong at Motegi. Um, 
let alone the access issues that you've got. You're a long way from Tokyo, so all that stuff, when it lands at Narita or Haneda, whichever one of the airports they use to bring the freight in on, you've then got to ship it up to the track. It's a long way. It takes a lot of time. Logistically, it's a bit of a nightmare. They've done it before, but they've risked it again. Even coming from J Japan now to Thailand, you know, all that freight will have come into Savannah Boom Airport, you know, out just, just sort of uh, south of Bangkok, trying to work out my bearings there for a minute. Um, and then it's got six hours minimum drive up to Buriram, you know, in a truck. I doubt they will fly the freight up from, from Savannah Poom to, to uh, Buriram. Unless I'm completely wrong. Maybe they bring the freighters into Buriram. There is an airport at Buriram. But I think that the main freight comes into to Savannah Poom and then they have to freight it up from, from there. So a lot of logistics going on at Dorna at the moment. But Miller, he'd got it all worked out. Brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Why is it that Ducati, as soon as a guy's on the way, they start performing? We saw it with Cal Crutch, though, when he was going to LCR. He had some of his best performances on the Ducati at the end of the year. He was supposed to have been there for two years. He ended his contract early. Um, then we had Lorenzo. Lorenzo was brilliant on it. I mean, just at the point of where he announced or they announced that he was on his way and they let him go, he started winning races. It was, it was incredible. Um, and there we go. And talking of Ducati, Petrucci's back. Oh, well, there's so much to discuss. I won't, I won't. Yeah, there is. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm moving on a bit too quickly. You're moving on too quickly, Keith. Uh, Andy has also asked a good question, and Pete might be worth picking up on this because, I mean, clearly Jack had the right setup, wet and dry, but he picks up. Andy says, um, Why was Jack the only Ducati, maybe with the exception of, of Jorge Martin, to get the race so right when they would have had so much data that they all could have shared? Again, as Keith says, it's down to, you know, he was comfortable right from day one. He wasn't, he was fastest in that Friday practice session. Then there was all the rain on the Saturday. So there was no running on, no dry running on the Saturday at all. So you already had a decent dry setup. But then the other key thing was on the Sunday morning for the warm up, Ducati really flexed their muscles in terms of their bike numbers. Eight bikes, they put guys out on all three tires the soft tire the, the medium rear and the hard the hard hadn't been used on friday michelin didn't expect it to be raced and yet that was the tire that jack went with in the race and won with it it's also the one that binder used as well and, and uh you know to, to good effect so you know he he started off well he was disappointed after qualifying you know, qualifying in 11, uh, seventh in the wet i mean jack is a, is a better wet weather rider than that it didn't really represent his his true pace and as Keith said he was right there from the start of the weekend and when you've got these sort of sh shortened schedules we've been talking haven't we since the beginning of the year these are the unknowns the flyaways no one's been here what's going to happen and here we are the first one you get two title contenders that don't even score any points and the other one is eighth so if that's what we've got coming up for the next three i mean it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster isn't it it so is well, let, let's, everything let's talk on those mistakes keith because they, they suddenly creep in aprilia and uh alicia spargro banyaya as well with that crucial mistake of crashing out on the final lap what did you make of of our title contenders buckling under the pressure or just just getting it wrong well, I think Pete's just touched on it. The fact is, is that conditions are so variable. Mateki is like this. You know, these kind of conditions. We might have the same at Thailand, as Pete's also alluded to, that, you know, the weather forecast is not looking great. So data is everything. It's key in these situations. If you land on a on a setting that's actually worked, as Jack obviously did from early, early times, and that might well have been why it didn't work so well for him in the wet. Because the bike just, they hadn't got wet settings there in, in Mateki. So his qualification wasn't as good as it perhaps would have been in normal circumstances with Jack riding it. Aprilia. Oh, 
do you just feel sorry for that? For I mean, the look on their faces. Aleish was in with a real chance in, in you know at Motegi, and those chances come few and far between nowadays in Grand Prix racing. I felt devastated for them to have the wrong you know electronic setup dialed in, and then when he went out, I mean maybe he'd run out of allocation of tyres. I don't know, but he went out with the wrong rear tyre in. Really, I mean as Pete's already said, you know the front runners were, were considering the hard tyres, whereas he, he was out on a soft. You know, it's a very, very difficult situation for Aprilia. They're just going to have to pull their pants up, you know, suck it up and and get on with the next round because you can't go back, unfortunately, in that situation. Just a disaster. KTM, I mean, Brad Binder, we know he's got the, you know, we know he's got the talent. I can't wait, actually, for next year when he's got Jack Miller as a teammate. It's going to be a formidable team if KTM can make just those steps that we need to make over, over the winter. But they're going to get on along fine. The Bagnaya thing... Well, the only way it could have been any, you know, like, honestly, I mean, lose the front end like he did. I can understand what he was trying to do. He got the, you know, his main rival in front of him and, and like, he's closing him down, trying to get it sorted. You, you, you can't, bl- you know, no one can be blamed for falling down, trying in the way that he was. And he's lucky in as much as that there's been no massive great jump in points um, for, for, for Quattararo because he was obviously struggling anyway. So, uh, you know the, the championship is still well alive. You know he might Quattararo might have extended his lead very slightly, but uh, I mean how lucky was Quattararo not to be wiped out by the falling Bagnaia? I mean there must have been a cigarette paper in 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 gap between Bagnaia's falling front wheel and uh, Quattararo's back wheel. So I think really, uh, other words, Motegi, we've got away with the championship. The championship is still fully on. We've still got a proper race for this championship going into these last few rounds. Um, this weekend is going to be critical. And Thailand, a bit like Motegi, no data. Track will have changed. The, the thing you get in hot countries like Thailand, where the weather goes, you know, like absolutely cooking hot and humid to absolutely slinging down with rain, track changes from year to year. It deteriorates. Everything deteriorates at a rotten rate in hot countries. You know, your house. I had a house in Thailand. <laughs> and honestly, I couldn't believe how much maintenance you have to spend on it just to keep the thing standing. You know, the, the, you know the, the monsoon blows through and rips all the roof tiles off and the, the, the walls start to peel and everything. Garden gets destroyed. It's amazing. Now, one year in Thailand is like 10 years in the UK. It's, cool. it's the deterioration of, of just normal building materials. Maybe it's the way they make them. I don't know. But, but we can see that this track will be different when they get to it, I'm sure. And it, it seems like with, with Binder, he was saying it's obviously he, qualifying has been a big thing for them, isn't it? They've struggled. And so starting from the front row, that was a that was a great big boost for him already. But it seems like their bike works well in low grip. And he's saying when you, you have less track running, you have a, a track that hasn't been raced on for three years, at least by MotoGP, had less use than normal. You know, it could be the same for these upcoming races that there is less grip. So I think there's good hope there for KTM. If, they, if the, their bike does work in low grip conditions, Binder was on the podium in Qatar, of course, you know, sand, sandy conditions, underused track again. Um, you know, that's a, that's a good thing for them. I mean, um, excellent. I mean, riders were queuing up to praise Binder, weren't they, afterwards? I mean, uh, you know, they were they were really felt he done well. It was Binder and Jack as well. I mean, in fairness, Binder was saying Jack was on another level today with what he did, and he's looking forward to racing with him. But there was a lot of people saying that what Brad did as well was, was exceptional. And Aleish, as you say, I mean this whole eco map thing. I mean, you could see the bikes crawling around to the grid, couldn't you? Now, now, just to be clear, if people are wondering, well, hang on, why don't they just top the bikes up on the grid? You can't, you can only refuel them in the pits for safety reasons. So, you know, that's it. That's where your 22 liters is done. So then you have to go around to the grid 
obviously as slowly as possible. It's a thirsty track, Mategi. Then you have the, you know, the grid clears and you do the warm-up lap. And as he pulled away from that warm-up lap, as Keith was saying, this eco mode was still set into the bike. It's not something that we've heard about before, but it makes sense that, that, that all of the manufacturers presumably have them. Aleish knew the problem when he pulled away. He knew what it was. And, and presumably, I mean, obviously, Aprilia, they don't want to go into great detail on this, but presumably it's not something that he could correct on the bike. That's why he knew he had to pull in and, and, you know, seeing him having to ditch the bike, jump on the other bike. As Keith says, soft rear tyre wasn't the tyre he was going to race with. It was going to be a medium. I think it had even done maybe a couple of heat cycles. It was very much a backup tyre. So he knew he was kind of, you know, his chances were gone then. And uh, But even then, you know, the pace he did with the soft, it just made things worse, as he said, because he, he could see what he could do. His teammate Maverick beat Quattararo, didn't he, with an Aprilia. Aleish was starting in front of them. And as he said, it's so rare to be in a position where he can beat both of those guys going into a race, be confident that he can take points out of Peko and Quattararo. And it was one of those days where he could have done it and it, and it all slipped away, didn't it? I think he's, you know, it, it's, it's on the ropes a bit for his title challenge now with 25 points, you know, with four races to go. I think if he, if he's to lose another big chunk this weekend, it's going to be really difficult. So, big weekend for him to try and get back into it as Keith says uh, Banyaya 18 points away he's still he's still in touch there with with 100 points still on the board but Aleish he's going to have to hope that he can well maybe maybe take a gamble you know maybe he just needs to throw caution to the wind now and accept that he's got to go for it this weekend and not let this gap get any bigger because uh, taking points off, off Quattararo will be difficult um, the only other thing you can say Aleish okay it was a human error with the team. We did see Aleix, though, didn't we, in Barcelona? He messed up the last lap. So, you know, I'm sure he understands that, that it's a team and people make mistakes. They're even from now. all sides of it. <laughs> That's it. We've got to feel sorry for him. That's two two incidents like that and being taken down by Quattararo in Assen. I mean, he's had some bad luck this year, hasn't he? There's a link there. It's called a Ferrari man called Rivola. The amount of mess that Ferrari make of their decisions in Formula One, perhaps it's all moved over with Rivola to Aprilia. <laughs> Look them up if you don't follow a bit of Formula One. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Um, Jack Miller, clearly the man of the meeting, but really close second on a Honda track when Honda haven't had anything to shout and scream about for some time. Marquez set in pole position. What a day that was for Honda. I mean... <laughs> I say it often when I get on a subject I really like. The hairs have just gone up on my hands as I said it because it was so exciting to see Mark Marquez in that position. Fourth place. Now they've bolted his arm around the right way and it's actually facing in the direction it ought to be facing in. He's pretty good on a motorbike, isn't he? He's not bad, that Marquez. He might be one to watch, Pete. And he didn't feel any pain. You know, that was the big thing. I mean, you know, he's... He's kept a lid on it, hasn't he, these past few years. He hasn't been letting on exactly how much pain he's been in. Keith has pointed out before you that he could see the riding position changes and how he looked awkward on the bike. But in terms of the pain levels, obviously only Marquez knows that, and he's been keeping that a lid on that in terms of the public. And now we're hearing that this is the first time he's done a whole race distance without pain in his arm. So, you know, let's hope that's a, that's a good sign of things to come. The arm was obviously tired. He was obviously fatigued, but lazy was the word he used for the arm. It felt just lazy the muscles but I mean that's to be expected but uh, you know he was expecting to really struggle the stop and go the hard braking on that track of Mategi to come through that without pain is uh, is, is a really good sign for him and as he says pole position first one in three years and uh, now we're heading to the track where three years ago he wrapped up his 2019 title with a record amount of points wasn't it and, and everything else you know how much things change but uh, if it rains this weekend we've seen his pass in the wet going to be interesting, isn't it? I mean, Thailand, you just said it. I mean, he was 
magnificent at Thailand again. And you're right, those those same kind of uh, disciplines come into place, that hard-breaking you know, situation that he's, we wondered whether his arm would be good enough for. Motegi couldn't get much better. You know, it's the first place that we ever saw the big high-mass brakes um, fitted compulsorily on motorbikes because they were running out of brakes at Motegi to give you some idea just how hard it is. And I can't tell you how hard a downhill from a flat-out position is, like turn 11, before you go under the bridge for the for the final chicane and up onto the victory corner, onto the, the front straight. That is a tough place um, to try out your 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 physique, particularly if you haven't... I mean, he's still race rusty. He didn't get a full-on arrogant. So goes to Motegi, you know, sets it on pole. Fourth place was a good fourth place as well. I mean, like, he looked really, really well. I reckon... You know how those aches and pains go through you, but but that's just because you've not really strained those muscles quite as much in recent times. The physio this week will be working like mad on him, and he will come out, I think, at Arrogant, at, sorry, at um, Buriram, in really good condition. I'm really looking forward to Marquez in, in Buriram. Could Mark Marquez be on the podium, win a race before the end of the year? Well, I've got it for Buriram, I think. I'm going to put him on in one. <laughs> right. Oh, he's already got in there. That's the earliest thing. Everyone's put a prediction down. All right. <laughs> but I mean, so especially yeah, I mean, that move. If, it, if it's wet. Yeah. And, if it's wet, definitely. I'd put him on for a podium this weekend in the wet. And I think what was really telling was that move on, on Miguel Oliveira to, to take that fourth place at the very end, just showing how I think he said he felt that, you know, he could push for the first time. So, I'll, you know, I'll nick that move. And he did it in, in pure Marquez style as well to take fourth place away uh, from Oliveira, which is really encouraging to see. Um I mean, so much going on at the front end. We've got a few questions coming in as well. But can I remind you, um, who had Binder on the podium? Who had him on the podium? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Um, and of Binder... I'll tell you what, I have to say, Harry, that was an inspired... It, you must have been doing your homework a bit on that. You know, uh, that was inspired. Two, two years of this podcast, I've picked up a few things in my time. Um, but uh, Brad Binder, sensational ride from him, as we've alluded to. Um, and Kane has asked, uh, something we asked as well, has KTM found something recently or is it a bit more track-specific? And Dion adds on to that. Can Brad Binder be a title contender next year if KTM get the bike right? Yes, he can. I think that that goes for any anybody on the grid. If the bike's about right, those guys are, you know, they're working their way through it incrementally all of the time. KTM may, in to answer the first bit of that question, may just be getting a little closer to it with this bike that they've got at the moment. But again, it's going to come down to the fact that they have arrived at, at Motegi with a bike that suited the situation there probably quicker than most others. I, I think that I can't emphasize that enough. If, you, if you've got a bike that you just jump on and it feels about right and you've only got to make a few adjustments here and there with the shortened um, time that they had in free practice from dry to wet, wet to dry, um, it's almost a little bit of luck. Um, obviously, the base settings that they had for the bike worked quite well in Motegi. Maybe that will continue. Maybe they have found a, a way of getting around some of the problems that, that Binder's been having. But... Whether Binder can be a, a you know contender in on KTM, yeah, of course he can. KTM have had a hard time, but everything goes in cycles with these things. They will be piling on the the, the the engineering pressure back at the factory. They will be looking at things. The Valencia test after the final round will be interesting to see what what gets wheeled out for that, um, because then they've got decisions to make, and they haven't got a lot of testing to make those decisions. Remember, it's it's really small now. Testing time between the end of this year and the beginning of next. And it comes back to my old argument that I'm always banging the drum about. 
I don't know why they don't have the homologation cutoff two or three GPs into the series rather than we get to Qatar or whatever the first round is. is it, Qatar's not the first round next year, is it? Uh, Portimao. Portimao. Portimao, sorry, yeah. So when we get to Portimao, that will be the, the, the technical freeze from that particular point for those that don't have concessions for 2023. So you've got a situation where, you know, you almost run what you brung after that, which is which is never great, I don't think. It, it doesn't allow the engineering development to, to move into a racing environment where you get your best data. You've got a test at Valencia where it's going to be bloody freezing in November in, in Valencia. It's a not a representative track, in my view, of, of what we've got cut to come throughout the season. It's like a go-kart track. So is it the best place to be testing stuff for next year in the best conditions for next year? No, I don't think it is. And then we get to the to 2023 tests. You know, it, it, you know, you go to Sepang, and Sepang is covered in, you know, Blokes with money's Ferrari rubber or something that have been running around and around and around and around there in road cars having a having a great old time, depending on who's hired the track. So you, you might spend the first day of the test getting over whatever rubbish there is on the racetrack, trying to get it up to speed. So it's a really difficult time for, for engineers and, and people to bring things forward from one year to the next in MotoGP at the moment. And that's why I don't agree with with the fact that we've got that cutoff at the first round where those engines are then set for the rest of the year. I still think that it should be three rounds in or maybe four rounds in, and then you've got the, the, the technical freeze after that for those people that don't have concessions. I, th- I think the track's definitely played into the hands of KTM, as Keith says. It, from what Binder was saying, it, the bike is strong in braking. It seems like it works well in low grip. It's the corners, it's the turning where they need the work for, for 2023. The impressive thing about Binder on Sunday as well was he hadn't used that hard tyre for a single lap, I don't think, before the race. So he, he went into the, the race and he was saying, you know, he was just learning as he went along. He was improvising, right, what can I do? What do how will it react? Um, Miller had, had used it in warm-up, so he had an idea. So he was sort of measuring himself off those guys at the front and just learning on the fly uh, and then made the most of it. So he gave a lot of credit to the team for obviously it was a big call by KTM to, to, to go with a tyre they hadn't used, but uh, definitely paid off. I tell you what, how much are we looking forward to Jack Miller and Brad Binder being side by side? I think Brad Binder is very much a Jack Miller type person, you know, like he'll he'll ride the wheels off it. I mean, and that's that's the thing with Jack. Stick the hard tire in, a couple of laps to feel what it's like, and then get your head down and get on with it. And Binder is a tough, you know, you know, hard rider. He he he's very similar in my view to Jack. I think Ducati, you know, it's interesting at the moment at Ducati. They lose you know, we mentioned earlier on, as soon as they get about to fire somebody, they come to these kind of performances all of a sudden. But they're losing a guy that works really well with Bagnaya. Is Bagnaya the World Championship winning deal for next year? We'll wait and see. Bastianini, I think Ducati are going to rue the day they let him win that race the other day, particularly now we get into the last few things. Those few points that Bastianini took off of Bagnaya could be crucial come Valencia. Well, I, I wanted to actually, I wanted to go to Fabio first, but actually oh. because you... Actually, oh, actually, Harry, if I may, yeah, of course. the other thing about the, the, the Bastianini-Bagnaia situation, it would have given Ducati an opportunity to have tested his attitude towards team orders before we get into next year. And that, again, in a tight championship, is very important that you've got a rider that might be compliant or understand what's going on with, with a championship-winning team. So if Bagnaia balked, in the situation he's in this year with a Ducati directive to, to, to give Bainaya a hand, um, it gives Ducati a bit of an opportunity to understand 
what his mental situation might be next year. I know it's different circumstances when you're in the same team. He's not in the same team. He's winning for, for Grassini. He's winning for Grassini's sponsors. But all the same, he's moving to the factory team next year. So his allegiance should be to Ducati probably even more than it would be to Grassini. I know that's a hard thing to say, and not everyone will like that. It's not palatable. But but the fact of the matter is is that Ducati would have had an opportunity to have seen what he would have been like in a team orders type situation. I think that's a really good point. But just to pick up on what Billy has asked as well, uh, with Banyaya, another mistake, fifth retirement on the year of, of the year. What was the move really on? How And you've mentioned the words already, team orders. How can there be any talk of team orders by Ducati when Pecco keeps doing stupid things like this, uh, With especially the latest with that sort of last lap, and I'm quoting here, last lap brain fade at Motegi. Bastinini, I think, now has a better chance of the title. And what does that say for next year? Is actually Bastinini going to be the man who can handle a title challenge? Is this Banyaya showing perhaps he, he can't quite handle the pressure? Really, really good question. What was his name again? He needs a double double mention. That was from Billy. Billy, I've got to say, that's a good question and one that we can't answer. We are going to find out. You know, the fact is, Quattararo, <laughs> Quattararo, Bangnaya has made mistakes and some of them have been his own doing. This one in Motegi could be his most costly. You know, he was struggling with the way that bike obviously felt. The thing is, when you're watching from TV, you can't tell how good or bad a bike feels. Well, you can in Jack Miller's case because he cleared off in the distance. But for everyone else, we can't tell how that bike feels to them. You know, that little bit of movement, that little bit of squidge on the front when you're you know, dropping it on the front end. Maybe he was pushing his luck throughout most of the race and riding through an ill-set motorcycle. And it was only when it finally let go. Because he basically looked like he was... He didn't look like he was going to be able to catch Quattararo and, and make that pass on him. But all of a sudden, it's like he felt the force and he got closer and closer. And then it, it was on a possible pass before it all let go. Difficult one, but I think a very good question. And I think the answer is, is that is a big question mark that's going to be hanging over the head of Magnaia going into 2023. If he doesn't win the title this year, is he going to be the man that wins it next year? Well, Bastianini... I would think is at the moment starts a bigger favourite perhaps than Bagnaya next year. So there you go, Billy. <laughs> there you go, Billy. Pete, what do you think? I, I mean, I, yeah, I've got to say, I think that Bagnaya is racing for the 22 title. I think Bastianini is already racing for the 23 title. I think that these final rounds are about him showing to Ducati, if you give me the backing next year, I can deliver for you. And I think he's not prepared to just back off and, and, and wait for next year, let's say. You know, people might say, well, you know, your time's going to come next year. I think he's in, in these races now. He's trying to already uh, show to Ducati that, that he's not just going to slot into a number two position, if you like, in the team, that, that he can be the guy that can win races, can win the title for them. And I think, yeah, it, there's no signs of it. You saw him battling with, uh, with Pecco on Sunday, didn't you? Pecco had a, it was another strange one for him in the wet. He was a great wet weather rider last year, wasn't he? But we saw in Indonesia this year, he struggled qualifying in Mategi two and a, two and a half seconds off, off pole. I mean, it, as he was saying, there's something that's not working in the wet for him on that bike and whether that just sort of set him back a bit, but he didn't come through in the race, did he? I mean, Quattararo struggling to overtake, well, no surprises for, for anybody watching there, is there really? But it was Banyaya not making that progress. You thought, you know, with the top speed he's got, with the braking, he was still good in braking, but he didn't have the traction, he said, off the corners. And then 
the rushed mistake on the final lap. Yeah, I mean, costly, isn't it? Uh, it's There would have been several, as he says, the downhill braking. I mean, there were a, a several good overtaking points left. It wasn't, a, well, I've got to make the move here. It was only turn two, wasn't it? He had a lot of other options available to try and pass Quattararo on that last lap. And it just looked like he he rushed it a little bit. And, you know, he, he put his hands up, said it was a, a huge mistake. And, uh, yeah. You do wonder, don't you? It's, uh, you know, is it slipping away from Ducati once again? It's uh, it's certainly, you know, for Quattararo to come out of this eight points, gaining eight points on his two title rivals. I mean, who would have imagined it, um, you know, going into the race? There's a phrase you mentioned in that, um, Pete, that is absolutely relevant uh, about, you know, your time will come next year. Anybody that lives to that mantra is is not going to be doing it. It's it's a situation where, you know, he can he can taste the blood in the water, I think, Bastianini over Magnaia. And, and, you know, you show no mercy in this situation. You know, unless there's a direct directive from Ducati, a forceful directive from Ducati, you must finish behind Magnaia. If it's left any ambiguity in, in, the, in, the, in the conversation, he's going to go for it. He's, he's, there is, uh, that, that phrase, you know, your time will come next year. Go back through history of four-wheel and two-wheel sport and those that have waited for their time next year and don't get it. I love it. For whatever reason. (laughs) I love the drama of it all. Well, the championship gap, uh, 18 points now, isn't it, between Pecco and Fabio, and then 25, a leash back from Fabio, and they're 170 points to his name. But I suppose Fabio kind of got, got away with it a little bit, managed damage limitation, really, because if you think about it, since the German... Grand Prix win he's only been on the podium once and suffered two retirements in that time so is this Fabio is this a dip in performance for, for Fabio Quattararo I think he said over the weekend you know I haven't felt comfortable riding this bike in a while so is, is is Fabio a little bit in trouble here and just hoping that he can ride the wave of his title rivals mistakes when a virus goes through the paddock everybody gets it it's, it's, we all travel together. We all use the same toilets together. We all eat in the same places together. And it's, it seems that there's some kind of virus gone through. Everyone's having a difficulty in winning this championship. Who's, there's no one that seems to be able to get a hand on it. And with the likes of Mark Marquez coming up to speed now and, the, and so on and so forth, and we get to these final rounds of, in some cases, absolute desperation to try and get plenty of points on the board. It's not just about one of those three who can beat each other. It's all the spoilers that are coming in now. It's going to be, you, you know, you've got to be on your absolute edge form, on the best form you can be on. Your engineers have got to make the best decisions. There is any more mistakes and you're not going to win the title. There is no, about. it doesn't matter who you are out of the top three, you know, because everyone else doesn't care anymore. Anyone from fourth place backwards <laughs> doesn't care. They're just going to do their very best to win and they're going to be forceful with it because they're not thinking about a championship. They're thinking about the best position that they can, can make up in the last few rounds. And that's going to be really difficult for anybody who's feeling slightly fragile, whether it be Quattararo because he's having a dip and he can't work out why, Benaya because he can't stay on the thing, you know, Alasius Bargro because they dialed in the wrong electronics. You know, all these things are going to be messing with your head. And then you've got Marquez who just wants to prove that he's, he's right back and do it for Honda. I mean, the pole position for Honda. You cannot believe how much that would have lifted. You know, the head of Honda will have been at Motegi. And, and, and to see their bike start from pole position and be in the position again, magnificent. You know, like it's and, – and he's going to interfere with them. I mean, there's, there's tracks coming up that, that you know, he's going to be very good at. 
I think Quattarari's problem has been, Jack, just to bring up your, um, sorry, Harry, to bring up your point you made about the podiums, is uh, it's the qualifying, isn't it? He, he hasn't been getting on the front rows. He's been down the order and he's just not able to get get through on, on the opening laps. We saw it, obviously, it all went wrong at Aragon. And, and he's in that trap of not being able to overtake. Qualifying is absolutely crucial for him. He's still clearly the top Yamaha in terms of the results. So I think that's that's the main thing from his side. Uh, you know, he's he keeps talking about riding the bike over the limit all of the time to try and sort of get keep up with the other guys, if you like. But he has got this points buffer now, you know, and that's why he was in real trouble until these two incidents at Mategi on Sunday, because the other guys were in striking distance. Now, you know, he's he's edged away a bit. He's got a little bit of breathing room, but a lot is going to depend on this weekend. But in a situation of a rain race or something, he can't afford to take a risk, can he? You know, so it's going to be, as Keith said, it's going to be the guys that they don't care. They'll they'll take a gamble. The Marquezes or the Binders or the, the Martins, Zarco, those guys, they can take a gamble and just go for it, win or bust, because, hey, why not? They're not in the championship fight. These guys can't really afford to do that. So whenever we get these tricky races with the weather or the lack of practice, it always sort of works against the title guys in terms of finishing towards the front, I think, because, you know, if they won well, as we've seen mistakes on Sunday, they could be you know, crucial in terms of the championship. It's exciting. These last few races are not going to be ones to miss. Uh, let's move on, though, because time is running away from this. I want to talk about Moto2, um, if I may, because uh, the fans were on their feet at home uh, because the home hero, Ayaguri, became the first Japanese winner at home uh, since 2006 uh, with a hard-earned victory uh, in the Moto2 race. He called it the best day of his life, having started all the way down in 13th. Uh, Pete, well, let's come to you first. Just what did you think of the Moto2 action? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a great ride from him, wasn't it? I mean, wh- where was he on the grid? Way down, buried down on the grid. I, I think, think it was thirteen. Yeah, a wet qualifying again. We should say for the the Motor Two guys as well. So you had people sim- similar thing, couldn't afford to take the risk, and uh, you, you know, in terms of the, the wet weather conditions, they played a bit safe. So the championship guys are down the order, and he comes through. So yeah, it was a. a I mean fantastic i mean what is it now two points between him and augusto fernandez it was a slippery track we saw a lot of accidents didn't we a lot of uh canettes falling once again you know when is this this win ever gonna sort of occur for him but um yeah you know kept his head in front of his home fans as you say with all that pressure that must have been on him and and yeah i mean what a title battle we've got between those two uh, aguru obviously staying in motor two next year Fernandez going up to MotoGP with the the Tectoir Gas Gas team, as it will be called then. Do, do, do you think, Keith, uh, someone called Friday Trouble on Twitter has asked, is Ayagura's dominance in the Japan GP going to continue to the end of the season or is it more of a home circuit thing? I think you've got a lot of pressure. We've talked about this with home circuits before, haven't we? You either win or choke. It's one of those ones where there's so much pressure on you when you're particularly Japanese sponsors, you know, Team Asia, you know, title for the team and to qualify as badly as he did you're right it was 13th by the way Harry it was 11th for Augusto Fernandez so um you're paying attention to your sheets I just misread mine <laughs> I'll let you off <laughs> but the point being is that uh, Ayogura it's a fun, it's, it's a strange situation isn't it? there was a big speculation whether he was going to go up to LCR and, and knock Nakagami out of the of the LCR MotoGP deal Nakagami you know is in trouble he's got that injury to his hand so you know no riding from him um would i agura have been a better bet in motor gp next year i still feel he probably would have been i still think he's got a, you know some headroom you know in performance terms to go um he could win this title 
you know, it's been a while since he's been won by a Japanese rider. So uh, it's 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 something a little bit special. Was it a home track advantage? If you take the fact he is at home, you know, it always gives you a few hundredths of a second perhaps here and there. I don't think anybody has a major home track advantage in a place like Motegi because unless you've been riding in the Asia Talent Cup or something like that, you probably haven't ridden the track apart from when you do a, a GP, which is the same pretty much at Silverstone, you know. Silverstone, you, you you know, you only have a British superbike round there or something uh, nowadays. So you don't really know that track as well as the amount of times you might have ridden at, I don't know, you know, in Spain, for instance, you know, you're riding those tracks all the time. So it, it's, it's, is there actually a physical home track advantage? No. Is there a psychological advantage? Maybe just, it just makes you try that little bit harder to, 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 to grab the win. And he did. Brilliant. Also, I think, talking of home track advantage, Keith, of course, this weekend, his teammate, Somkiat Chantra. Now, if they were to put a pit board out, you were talking about team orders. It's going to be a tough one if they want him to pull over for Ayagura this weekend. <laughs> oh, that is just, I mean, in Thailand, again, it's the cultural thing as well. I mean, the, the Japanese, the Thais, very, very similar in determination over, you know, in their cultural demands, if you like. And I mean, Chantra will be under a lot of pressure to take a win at home. I mean, it has huge ramifications in a country like Thailand, the same as it does in a country like Japan for Agura. It is going to be a real tough one for this weekend. There is no doubt about it. You know Chantra is going to have pace. The big issue is going to be the weather, I think, in Thailand. I don't think it's going to be um, quite where we want it to be, looking at all the forecasts. And it can be absolutely horrendous in Thailand, as it can be in Motegi. But Thailand is, is, is you know, it's known for... A, for a lot of when it rains, it really, really does rain. You get a gallon of it per per square inch. But um, I'm just trying. There was something in my head about Chantra that 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 I just think that he's inconsistent still. He's ruled out a fair amount of inconsistency, but he's still an inconsistent rider. And and I think that will he be able to pull it off, or will he throw it to the fence? It's going to be one of the two. That's for sure. Well, I mean, it is so tight, isn't it, in Moto2? As we say, two points now uh, between Augusto Fernandez and 234, Ayagura 232, then it's Canet and uh, Vietti. Um, just sticking with Moto2 for a little bit longer, because there's a bit of news as well. And we've got a big American audience, and uh, a couple of them have, have asked if we can chat a bit more about the Americans, and uh, we're nothing but listeners. Um, and they both moved forward in the race. Cameron Bobbio with an amazing start to get up towards the leaders at one point before slipping back, and Joe Roberts found his way through too. What we haven't discussed... Um, um, is Cameron Bobier's decision to quit Moto2 at the end of the year and head back to the US uh, in Moto America. Keith, what did you make of that when it came out? It, why has it not worked out? Um, there aren't really, or who are the next, are there any young Americans to watch out for? Moto3, not really. I think the, the problem is in, in your sentence, young Americans. Hmm. Uh, there's plenty of Americans, but not too many young ones. Right. And we've got this situation where it, that that is an issue you know where is your future you know cambobier great rider done i have to say i mean some people will say he hasn't done as well as they expected i think he's done at least as well as i expected probably better actually cambobier is a great rider but he's of a certain age in a certain situation and he's got to look where his future is going to go what is he now 28 i think he is um you know it he's he's i won't say he's getting on a bit but really He's not struggled in this, but he hasn't consistently been able to make it work for him. We might find now that the pressure is off and he knows he's going back to the, the US, 
um, to race again over there. That, that Now the pressure's off, we might find him relaxed back into some great rides at the end of the year. Joe Roberts seemed to have you know, looked like he was on the ramp to success, and, and that's tailed off a little bit as well, despite the fact it's, it, you know, it was quite a happy team. John Hopkins was in there as a mentor and so on and so forth. You know, Rory Skinner, one of the, you know, the youngster from, from Scotland over here, in the UK, I mean, he's he's mentored by the, the the American racing team as well. So, you know, there there are there are strange options, but I I just you know, Gagne has just just beaten Petrucci for the for the championship in America, the Moto America championship. Wayne Rainey and his crew are really trying to to bring this up. Then you know, getting Petrucci in there as a as a kind of uh, a guide, if you like, a, a you know, to work out what level they're at proves that they are at a good level. Petrucci's no no slouch. Won a MotoGP race, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive. And he goes over there and finally gets beaten by Jake Gagne for the for the Moto America Championship. And it went down to the wire to the last round. But that's a big deal for me. But it's that youngster level, that 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 ladder that's that's coming through that the Americans are, are struggling with to, to to bring their talent to the kind of level it needs to be at an early enough age. Um, I don't know why Cambobia has decided to jump ship. There have been many before that haven't made it work. You know, you can look at our own Mackenzie. He had one year in, in Moto2. Just couldn't work it out. It is a tough class. It is probably the toughest class now. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's not always going to work out. And if you add the finances to that, you know, you're making no money. Most of those guys in Moto2 are making no money. Most of those guys in Moto3 are making no money. They're having to bring money to teams to make it work for them. You know, once you start looking at that side of thing, where is my future? Where am I going to go? Cambobier can probably ride in Motor America till he's 35, 40 years old, you know, providing he doesn't get injured at any stage. And that's the other downside of racing in America. The tracks are a lot more dangerous than Grand Prix tracks. Um, so you've got a situation with how long is my career? How much money am I going to make? These are things that are always fiddling around in the back of your head. You don't like to think of them as a sportsman because you're only really focused on your sport and going going fast, but the money in the end, you know, gets the better of you. Where is my career best off? Yeah, it was a, it was a real shame when, when you sort of read that announcement, I think, that, that Bobia was going back just because it seemed like the early rounds of this year that, you know, he'd had his rookie year and he was fighting for the podium, wasn't he? And it just it just slipped away, you know, a few little mistakes and things like that. You just wonder if, if those results had come, if he'd got those uh, podium or two in those earlier rounds that maybe he could have built on that. But you know, he's clearly taken a decision. He's, he's he said he's, he's a mature guy. He, he knows what he wants from life. Coming from America, I don't know where he's based, but, uh, you know, obviously you've got to travel to all the European rounds. There's, there's loads of travel, not not just for Americans, but Japanese or anyone that, that riders that are from outside Europe, you know, that, that wears you down. And it's one thing to do it if you're in your early 20s and whatever else, but I think he's he's uh, getting married soon and things like that. And he's decided to, to sort of settle down. Uh, for me, it's a little bit like with Dovi and, and, and the, uh, the Yamaha situation, which is, you know, at least he tried it. He had to try it. He took the gamble. He wanted to see if he could do it. It hasn't worked out, but you'll always know that he gave it a shot. For me, it's the Jake Dixon scenario. Jake Dixon, that first year, looked like he wasn't going to get a second year by hook and by crook, by getting that bang on the head. I've said it so many times before. Got brought in Mattia Pasini. Pasini didn't perform on the same bike. The team started to believe what Jake was talking about. They started to work as a collaboration and started to get it together. Look where Jake Dixon is now. He's this much off being Moto2 winner and consistently being a Moto2 winner. He's right there now. If he jumped ship, 
just that year early because it wasn't quite working for him, he wouldn't be here. He wouldn't be a Grand Prix podium man. He's been there, what, three times this year? You know, yeah. it's a situation where he's a little bit younger than, than Bobier, but he's a married man, the, the same thing. Jake has got, you know, a life. But I think what you've said uh, is absolutely bang on when it comes to your life. Is it easier for a Brit to travel to the, the countries that we travel to from here? So it's a big old hop when you come from America. You've got to land in Spain or you've got to land in the UK or you've got to land, you've got staging posters. So everything is a bit longer and a bit more difficult to, to achieve from a travel point of view. And it just means that you're a day or two out all the time more than you would be if you were based in Europe in the first place. You know, most riders from, from Asia, are, you know, are based in Spain or, or, or somewhere along those lines. You know, there's, there's some that used to base themselves in the UK because, you know, those hops to all the tracks, it just takes the whack out of it slightly if you position better logistically. Well, and talk of Jake Dixon, just before we came on air, he's uh, signed another year with Gas Gas Aspar for 2023. So uh, after what's, yeah, as you say, a bit of a breakthrough year for him, career best eighth in the standings at the moment, just that little bit off taking that win. But uh, hopefully that confidence he's already garnered and signing another deal will uh, only take him forward. I think he's going to get a win by the end of the year. Oh, I think 20, I, I'm convinced that the, once you've, once you've consolidated Jake is nearly there. It's the tiniest thing. It's a hair's breadth. Even one of my hairs, which are pretty thin nowadays. The point being is that he's nearly, nearly there. Sorry, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Not as thin as one of mine. (laughs) (laughs) He's very, very nearly there. And now that that that, that contract confirmation is there as well, it just gives that, that takes that one element of thinking out of your head. Now you can fully focus on what you're doing. And I've got the feeling that, that, that Jake will respond to that. Well, uh, it's uh, it's going to be a great end to the year for all the championships, I think. Uh, let's let's quickly go to Moto3 as well before we have a look forward uh, to what's coming this weekend. It's all coming thick and fast, isn't it? Um, Izan Guevara didn't have really a perfect start to the weekend, did he, Pete? But worked his way uh, to the front to take his second win in a row in Moto3. I think a shout out for Scott Ogden as well on the front row. Didn't pan out in the race, but great effort from him. Um, but the gap at the top is 45 points now yeah massive win for Gravar in terms of the championship I mean what an opening lap I think it was ninth to first or something wasn't it I mean it was stunning uh you know for someone who is as we've talked about the risks if you're leading the championship you know and and he just carved his way through and, and really put Garcia his teammate and nearest rival who was the guy who really needed to be pushing the one pushing forward and maybe banging fairings to get the job done put him on the back foot pretty early and uh, yeah, as you say, he's he's now got that real gap now. So uh, yeah, a big win, I think fifth win of the year. So yeah, I mean, perfect for him, perfect timing for him. And you could see that, that Gar- um, Garcia was fourth, I think. Y- you know, he looked a bit deflated, didn't he, by the end of the race. I think he knew that it's going to be a tough job to stop Guerrero now. thing about Moto3, with 100 points still on the table and a 45-point lead, Moto2 or MotoGP, you might think to yourself, hmm, I've pretty much got one hand on the trophy here. But with Moto3, you could be, you know, leading on the last lap, make a slight mistake somewhere and end up 10th, you know, because of how tight stuff is all the time. So once you lose the momentum on the last couple of laps, you can get swamped by, you know, a dozen other riders. So it's it's a class that is still very unpredictable. Yeah, 45, I'd rather have a 45 point lead than not have a 45 point lead at this point with, with 100 points on the table. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that no one will be taking anything for granted at this point. 
Absolutely not. Well, it is 45 points. The gap, 254 for Guevara, 209 for Garcia. Then it's Foggia and Suzaki. Right. Um, just before I keep teeing up, I want to look properly at Thailand. But there was a lot of news actually coming out just before we came on air. One of which is that MotoGP has announced a new race in Kazakhstan from next year onwards. I didn't see that one coming. It's a five-year deal. It's going to take place at the brand new Sokol International Racetrack, which is just outside Kazakhstan's largest city, Almaty. Um, Keith, Kazakhstan, fancy a trip? Well, here we go again, is all I can say. Good old Dorna. Um, I mean, they really are, you know, they really do like to sail ever so close to the political and human rights wind, don't they, all the time? I mean, politically... It was a former Soviet Union, state of Soviet Union, before the Soviet Union was was disbanded, if you like. Um, it's got a big border with Russia. It's got a large Russian contingent, Ukrainian contingent in there. Obviously, the Kazakhs as well, which are a, a separate um, ethnicity too. Um, there's a lot of elements that are floating in this particular deal. And I've had difficulty in, in absorbing them this morning. I've had a quick look through everything I can see. You know, human rights is pretty low on the list of human rights um situations as well so yeah it's great to see a new new track on the calendar of course it is um i didn't see that coming you know I, I there was a there was a bit of a heads up recently to say it was an unlikely candidate for being on the schedule um but all of a sudden it went from unlikely to absolutely <laughs> absolutely there as harry's rubbing his fingers together yeah it will have a lot to do with cash there's no doubt about that you know dawner got a bit of making up to do when it comes to cash after the pandemic disaster although they didn't lose, they say, quite as much as um, we might have anticipated during the course of um, having to bail out so many teams and so many um, circuits. But Kazakhstan, you know, nice to have a new track, a completely new facility on 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 the uh, calendar, if you like. But I have reservations over all of this. Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, you know, should we be looking that way, really? I don't want to go all woke on everybody because that just annoys me just as much. But the, the point is, is there are places that, you know, I'd quite like to see us go into more. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see a second race in America. You know, the, 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 it's a massive place with massive markets. You know, Indianapolis, I used to like going to Indianapolis. Not a great racetrack, I have to say. Laguna Seca, it would be a great, you know, that would be just one of my perfect places to go to if they could sort out the safety element of it there, which they obviously can't because the authorities locally rule against anybody making any changes and so on and so forth because it's in that area of natural beauty and so on. Um, <laughs> although I have to say, if, if, you can top the, if you can chop the top off of two hills in the middle of Japan and make a racetrack there, then <laughs> maybe we need whoever did that deal to come across to California and sort the one out of Laguna yeah. Seca. Um, <laughs> but I, I, again... Good to have a new track on the calendar. Yeah, fantastic. Kazakhstan, is it? Um, will it cause any troubles in other, you know, politically correct type areas? I don't know. Up to you. For other people to talk about, I suppose. Yeah, let, let's. My know. feeling is that there, there are other places we could go to that um, that I'd quite like to see that are less controversial. Yeah, we had the very similar discussion not too long ago, didn't we, about the Saudi Arabia uh, potential. So let us know what you think. You're all very vocal about Saudi Arabia. Kazakhstan, any better? Let us know uh, in the comments. Um, but my, just finally on this, Pete, my, my question, how big is this calendar going to be? Because there's also rumours, obviously Saudi Arabia hasn't been officially confirmed, I don't think, but then there's also uh, rumours about uh, going back or going to India for the first time and and 
is I, I believe there's some sort of rule that uh, supposedly that 22 is the maximum but can that just be thrown out the window uh, I... it's, tw- it's tw- <laughs> like 25 in formula one next year i'm looking at that and going oh well, my god it, it? yeah you know and most gp does tend to to follow in that regard so you know clearly big calendars are, are the way that motorsport is going and you know, it's sort of been teed up for a while when we saw the Spanish circuit start to sign contracts that didn't guarantee a race every year. So, you know, Aragon, Valencia and uh, Barcelona, they've agreed that that if needed, if there's too many races on the calendar, they'll, they'll sort of alternate. So it would be one one year, one the other. So there is a way of getting new venues without adding the total number. As you say, as far as we know, the, the, the limit is sort of 22-ish for this current contract. We're in the first year Ish. of the five-year contract, as, as, <laughs> as we've discussed with Suzuki. So, yeah, this is only the first year of the five-year contract. So, yeah, I mean, it should have been 21 this year, of course, with Finland. So you could add that to the list. I mean, that hasn't been put on the scrap heap completely, but it seems like, I mean, we haven't had a provisional calendar yet, we should say as well, for next year. Normally we would have. Now, probably the reason we haven't is that these sort of su- surprises like Kazakhstan have been brewing. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's why there's been this sort of delay. Normally, it's out sort of Mizano time. So are there going to be any, any others? Who knows? You mentioned India. India, the track is ready. Of course, Saudi Arabia, they've got to build the track. So that's not going to be there next year. There's, there's no way that that's going to be a new track they're going to have to create. But India has that track, don't they? They had a few Formula One races. Uh, was it 10 years ago or so? So there is a racetrack there. I don't know what condition it's in now, but... So who knows? I mean, it would seem more likely to be 24 for that one. But, you know, theoretically, we might also, we might have a couple of new venues next year. Where you've got a problem, Pete and Ari, at the end of the day, is the funding for all of this. Moto3, Moto2, you know, the poor relations to MotoGP. MotoGP, we know that Suzuki had to be budgetary, why they pulled out, looking at the books, looking at what's going on, looking at their their future as, as a corporation. There are going to be others that are doing that from a factory perspective. But then if you start looking at the Moto3, Moto2 grids, you know, that's a big deal. You know, suddenly you're getting it up to 21, 22 races in a year. Um, Dorna are obviously going to have to offset that with some kind of uh, additional team funding, which they will, I'm sure, if they're, if they're getting big bucks from some of these countries. Um, but there's a, there's a raft of things that they've, they've got to agree on, surely, um, moving into the, the next contracts that, again, just to underline what happens in, in, in the paddock, Dorna are the overall promoters. The FIM are the licensed uh, people that basically stamp, rubber stamp the licenses for tracks and, 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 and the things to happen. Dorna are the owners of, of, of all of the rights for everything. Erta are contracted to Dorna to contract the teams. So basically, there's a link between Dorna and the teams through Erta, the International Race Teams Association. All of the grids and all of the, the, the funding and all the rest of it are channeled through Erta uh, to the teams uh, and the decisions made as to who, what the makeup of the grids are and so on and so forth all go through ERTA. Obviously, Dorna are overseeing all of this at some stage or another, but I can see the budgets um, having to change uh, during the course of the next two or three years as, as more and more of these tracks come on. Otherwise, you're going to have teams that are going to be bankrupt, bankrupt halfway through the year. You're going to end up with a situation. They're all, you know, there's a lot of teams that are sailing pretty close to the financial wind as it is anyway. Um, you know, it's down to ride. a lot of riders are having to bring money in with them. You know, you don't sometimes, you know, we, we don't want to go back to the olden days where the you know riders were, were able to buy rides because they got big money. Um, you used to see the odd Colombian rider that was coming in mentioning no names. You'd see, you know, one or two others that, that were connected with, with finances that, you know, a team had to have a second rider that had brought a load of money to be able to run the rider that they wanted as a, as a number one. 
So it was a situation, I hate it to go back to that, where talent was outweighed by cash from a, from a, a, a richer rider that perhaps, you know, I use the words advisedly, perhaps didn't deserve the ride on merit as much as the funding he was bringing to a team. I really, truly hope we don't go back down that road. Sounds like Formula One. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I didn't say the words, Harry. <laughs> Don't worry. I can say them. It's fine. Um, look, we're, we're running out of time a little bit. So I want to look forward now properly to to Thailand and the Buram uh, International Circuit. We haven't raced there since 2019. It's practically Keith and Pete's second home, I would say. Um, Marquez with the most wins there. Two on the uh, two on the trot. Has a, a contract till 2026. Not going anywhere anytime soon. And a couple of new riders or return. A double MotoGP race winner, Danilo Petrucci, is back in place of Joanne Mir on that Suzuki. And just coming through from LCR, uh, Tetsuta Nakashima uh, will replace Taka Nakagami at this weekend's Thai Grand Prix. I can only imagine that is because of uh, the injuries uh, that uh, Taka was really absolutely soldiering on through during that Japanese Grand Prix. So it's all going on in Thailand uh, this weekend. Keith, fill us in. What do we need to know? They all want to get there, don't they? That's the thing. Um, but I'm not so sure they'll want to get there if it actually starts to rain as much as it does. Uh, Thailand's a great venue. I mean, it's a great venue. Chang International is owned by you know, Mr. Chang himself. He's not called Chang, by the way. That's not his name. But uh, basically the Chang Beer Emporium. I mean, if you remember going back to the day, it was it was a bit of a snag getting the, the Grand Prix there because Singer Beer, which is another Thai, Thai beer, sponsors MotoGP. So you end up with a situation where... Chang all over the place, sing a beer on all the bikes. It was a bit like the Red Bull versus Monster type situation you had when we went to the Red Bull ring. It was a, it was one of those problems. Um, but it's a it's a fantastic Grand Prix. Buriram is not a city you would go to for any reason, unless you're a Thai and you're going to the university there or something along those lines. I mean, because of the football team that they have in a big football stadium that's in the front yard, if you like, of the of the racetrack, um, the racetrack came online a few years ago i remember going to it and having a look around and thinking blimey they've put the you know they've really done a good job great grandstands and all the rest of it um the thing about thailand i think is is it's evocative isn't it the whole thing about thailand is evocative everybody wants to go there one way or another at some time in their lives i mean it's it's a bit worn out from a tourist point of view nowadays it's not quite the way it was back in the 70s and 80s if you like um, because it, the, the trail to Thailand is is very well worn now. But it's still a place that if you can spend a few days either side of of the, the racing or whatever your business is when you go to Thailand and get down to the islands and do some of the bits and pieces. I mean, Bangkok, I think Bangkok is one of my favorite cities. London and Bangkok, I could live in either one anytime you like. But Bangkok is, a if you've got 24-hour cities, it's the way to go. Now, Buriram is five, five and a half hours out of Bangkok. But you can drive it really easy. I mean, the, the roads are brilliant. I mean, anybody that thinks we were on dirt roads and stuff like that over there, no, forget that. It's all dual carriageway virtually all the way to Buriram. Dead easy. Sat-navs work. It's not like it used to be where you just used to have a map and try and you end up in the boondocks, don't know where you are, and have to ask a local policeman. That really tests your tie. <laughs> Body cap, sabaydi. <laughs> Jot that down, everyone. <laughs> and and so on. And it's one of those situations where um, culturally it's very, very interesting. The people are friendly. They call it the land of smiles. They are friendly. It is a friendly place. Food's brilliant, as you'll know if you eat in Thai restaurants, if you eat in authentic Thai restaurants, I have to say. Um, the racing is good. 
the Asia Talent Cup is one of my favourite races that they usually put used to put on there. I don't know whether have they got an Asia Talent Cup this weekend. I don't know. Um, they had one in Japan, obviously. Maybe they've not. But um, normally that is a spectacular, and it's where we found some of the young Asians that are coming into Moto Three, Moto Two, and Moto GP. Um, you know, you would you would see these young Asians that are, are, are learning their craft, and they come through Thailand, Sepang, and so on. Buriram, good city. Plenty of things to do, plenty of bars, plenty of, of, of eating places, plenty of bands going on, lots of action. Um, don't ride elephants. Don't do the tourist thing because that's cruelty. We don't want any of that. Um, don't encourage it. Um, definitely go, I would say. You'll have a good time. Direct flights into Savannah Poom are a bit expensive nowadays. Um, you can fly from Savannah Poom if you don't want to drive. You can fly from Savannah Poom up to Buriram. They've got an, an airport there. It's about an hour, um, but you'll need to book that fairly early. Um, I would recommend driving. Land at Savannah Poom, get your IA car. By the time you've waited for your connecting flight, you're an hour and a half up the road anyway. So, And then by the time you get off the other end and wait for your bags, that's another hour wasted when you get there. So if you add up the hour and a half you're wasting, um, waiting for your next flight, the hour it takes to, to um, fly and another hour or so up the top, You've already got rid of three and a half hours of your five and a half hour drive. There <laughs> so you, you go, might as well drive. And the other thing as well, if, when you're driving, <laughs> there are thousands of places to eat and drink on the way. You know, if you fancy stopping, you can stop at a roadside cap and you'll get the best food for two quid you've ever had. Wow. Um, particularly if you like spicy food, by the way. Um, but it's, it, it's a great experience. I, I obviously love Thailand. I'm, I'm 50% embedded in the place, so you can understand why. But... I'm not giving you any old bull. It is a place you need to go to at some stage in your life. I think you're absolutely right. You've started to me over the last year. And Pete, well, you're actually there right now. You've got a five-hour drive on your hands. You've got that drive on your hands to do. No, he's coming down from Udontani. He's not got so long. Yeah, but first time I have driven. Yeah, I, I, um, I've been to Burium three, three times. I, I think Keith's been for Superbike as well. I, I've never been for that. But I, I first went for the MotoGP test, which was... Uh, February, I think, 2018. So was at the Sepang test, came across, and it was the first experience of, of Bury Rum and, and the circuit and everything. And I just, the one thing that still stands out was the heat. I remember at that test, it was so hot. You know, when you've come from Malaysia, people use the, you know, the whole sweat Olympics thing and Malaysia, Sepang, that was the standard for heat. You know, that was the level. And Bury Rum just raised it. I remember, and Petrucci, who of course is coming back this weekend, he was one of the guys that was really suffering with the heat. But uh, yeah, you know, it was, uh, as Keith says, a very different experience. I remember we were trying to find the hotel. We'd leave the media room at 8 p.m. And, and most of the restaurants were shut. We couldn't find anywhere to eat. We couldn't find the hotel. Bear in mind, this is just a test. Uh, you know, so there's not many people there. Fast forward on to 2019, and it was the biggest event of the season. So it's a huge event for MotoGP, isn't it? It was at 225,000 fans in the, the last year before the pandemic. So it's going to be really interesting to see how many come back this weekend. The hotels are all fully booked, I can assure you, for months in advance. Um, and yeah, as Keith says, I I've, I've previously have done the flight up from Bangkok um, to Buriram Airport, really small airport got the hire car from there and then it's about 30 40 minutes into the city but i didn't book early enough this time uh, as Keith says it's a really small place and hire cars are snapped up by teams they'll be using minibuses i would imagine this weekend usually run by the the hotels they're staying in because there just aren't enough uh, uh you know hire cars to go around we go to some places like cota texas and and uh, or barcelona you know where MotoGP is sort of an event on the side isn't it it's it's a, on the side of the city 
it will be the city this weekend. I mean, MotoGP, you bring in 100,000 people to, to, as Keith says, is what is really not that big a place. Everybody is going to know that MotoGP is in town and pretty much everybody there will be there to see MotoGP. Car transport, as you go, the, the motorways on the way up to Buriram, you'll see car transport is full of hire cars. They're just bringing them all out of, the, out of Savannapum up to Buriram unloading them the car park at Buriram into I don't think it's an international it might be an international airport that flies off into China or wherever Vietnam but it that all the car parks are full of hire cars and that they they put hire car booths on the front of the so you come out of the airport and you walk to Hertz or Avis or Sixth or whoever it might be um or the local the local firms like Chick and so on and so forth I mean they've got some funny names for, for hire car companies but all of these cars have been brought up on low loaders like they do in Argentina. They do the same thing in Argentina, don't they? They, they come up to Termas. Um, you know, you get off the off the plane at Termas and, and, and your hire cars have been brought up. The, and that's like, what, 24 hours, I think, that drive is for, for trucks to bring up. So, I mean, Buriram is, is not far away in comparison uh, to somewhere like the, 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 the situation at uh, Argentina. Um, yeah. What? I'm jealous, actually. I'm not going, <laughs> I must say. Very jealous. I'm having a bit of trouble with it. I I almost, I almost, very almost this week said to my wife, um, I'm just going to nip over to Bangkok. Is that all right? <laughs> almost. And then you saw the weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, then I saw what the weather might be like inside my house if I did that. <laughs> it would be fairly stormy. <laughs> well, it's, it's getting to that time, gents, where we will do our predictions. But first of all, uh, just a, another quick word on Danilo Petrucci, probably the nicest man from the paddock to come back in. Realistic expectations? What do we think he can do on that Suzuki? Well, if it's absolutely baking hot and horrible, then he should be well prepped for it with the Dakar. That's for sure. So uh, having ridden Ducati's KTM's uh, Dakar rally, and now he's going to ride a Suzuki, um, he won't do anything. I'm sorry to say. I just, I can't see. He'll be race rusty. He'll he'll know the track, obviously, and he may know the tyres because they've not changed that much, I suppose, but they will have changed as well in his his absence. But... uh, jump on a Suzuki that he's never ever ridden before at a place like Buriram with possibly difficult weather conditions that might be his best bet actually if it rains if it's consistently wet all the way through Petrucci might be the man that can make that work but I it's a very tall order it will come down to whether he jumps on that bike on Friday and it suits him if he feels at home on it a bit of the Jack Miller syndrome that we had at Motegi where everything just felt right as soon as he got on it on the Friday and if that's the case, then Petrucci might finish in the top 10. It'll be interesting to see when, having spent his Grand Prix career on the V4s at Ducati and then the, the KTM, now get on this inline, you know, corner speed style type of bike. Uh, you know, he's a big guy as well, Petrucci. You know, he struggled with his physical, his, his, his height, basically. I mean, he can't lose any more weight, but he, he struggled with that, didn't he, in terms of getting the best from the tyres in that last year at, at KTM and even at, at Ducati as well. But I think, I, I agree with Keith on that. I think the wet weather is going to be the thing that determines how his weekend goes. If he feels comfortable, uh, you know, we've seen what the bikes he's ridden this year, as he, as he says, you know, jumping from the KTM MotoGP bike to the KTM Dakar bike, winning a stage on that, then going to Moto America on a Ducati Superbike, and now he's going to a Suzuki MotoGP bike. I mean, it, he's clearly got the ability to adapt to different bikes pretty quickly, and he's got good natural feel. 
if if that all clicks, if if the low grip track that we maybe expect to combine with the rain, if if he just feels if he has confidence in that bike, I mean, who knows? Because he's got nothing to lose. And I think it's great to have him back. Um, I have to say, I think uh, you know for Joanne Mir, you know, I was speaking to some Suzuki guys at Aragon, and they were they they felt it a little bit that people have kind of criticized Joanne Mir a bit much about pulling out with his ankle injury and things like that. He obviously tried to come back at Aragon and then he stepped back again. And apparently there was people on social media, you know, saying things like, well, I broke my ankle and could still ride a week later. You know, I mean, racing a MotoGP bike is completely different, obviously, to being able to ride. And um, it's, it seems like it's, it's sort of leg, ligaments and, and, tendon, and tendons and things that he's having to, to repair. And those things take time. So I, I think it makes sense. He doesn't want to go into this new adventure at Honda either, does he? Which starts as, at the Valencia test that Keith was mentioning earlier. That's not far away. It's November. You know, mid-November, he'll be on a Honda. So, you know, he wants to be fit for that. We saw Lorenzo, another rider that you guys were mentioning earlier, he, he struggled with injuries at the start of that adaption, didn't he? And, and never really recovered from that, I think. He was on, he was on the back foot, if you like, for a pun, um, <laughs> and, and didn't really get comfortable on that bike. So I think it makes sense for Joanne to just sort of sit. Who knows, will he do Phillip Island? There is a weekend off after Thailand before Phillip Island, or will he maybe just come back for the, the Suzuki farewell at Valencia? We don't know yet, but uh, who knows? Maybe Petrucci will, will get a couple of races out of this. Well, it'd be nice to see him back on the bike either way. Um, okay, prediction time. Um, the big point scorer last time out was myself getting Miller and Binder both on the podium. So that's closed up the gap nicely. I think, what is the score? Pete's still in the lead with 18. Keith, you're equal with me on 15. And for you, quite frankly, that's embarrassing. So, <laughs> so I think Keith's gone first the last couple of times. So Pete, you can have first picks. What's uh, what's your prediction saying? I'm, I'm going to really, uh, yeah, so I'm going to go for a wet race. First of all, I'm going to predict that, which might in itself be completely wrong. <laughs> and that being the case, I, I'm going to go for Mark to win. No, uh, the I, win. Gonna, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to take some gaps. I'm going to go Mark from Zarco. Bear in mind, I'm basing this off the wet weather form that we saw on Saturday in Thailand. This is heavily, and and obviously the Indonesian race. And and I'm going for Brad Binder in third. Oh, you're stealing my Binder. uh, Oh, okay. No, you have not gone for the same. What is that? Is that that Zarko for the win? Zarko Miller Marquez. Oh, okay. And that's that's not in any order, but that was was what I wrote. The The only reason I showed you that it's because you wouldn't have believed it yeah. if I hadn't shown you. <laughs> that is brilliant. All right, so what's the order then? Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Well, no, we've got, we got Pete. So Pete, Miller. your Marquez, Zarco, yeah. Binder. Keith, yeah. who's your winner? Miller, Zarco, Marquez. Miller, let me just jot that down. Miller, Zarco, Marquez. Okay. And I'm gonna go. I'm betting on. I'm betting on the weather as well, Pete. <laughs> who are? Who else was good last time out? Um, Binder's on my podium, um, but I don't know who's gonna win. Who's gonna win? Who's gonna win? Um, You're oh, scratching your head, Harry. Hang on, wait. I just need. I just need to. Let me just check the results. Who did well? Look. I was gonna say. Well, put it this way: the two previous races, Harry Mark has won both of them at Bury Run, oh. but uh, obviously this he's uh, he's coming back. I know, I know, I'm putting, I know, I'm putting. My man Aleish is gonna win the race. Aleish Spargro from Binder from Marquez. <laughs> yeah, the, that's. The, I tell you what, the Binder call is a good call. He's good round there. 
low grip on good binder, form Binder call is a good call mm, yeah me and my binders we go we do well together now four races left and this has been inspired by a question that's been sent in from aman who is winning the moto gp title lock it in <laughs> keith you just asked me that i'm asking both of you <laughs> but who wants to go first Cotteraro. oh straight in Pete, Fabio. Yeah, I think, I think he's. I think he's right. I think he is right. I think Cotteraro um, gave him a big boost, but but really, we're not going to know until they get towards Sepang and and see the shape of it there. But if you're asking me right now, that's what I'd say. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm the same. I, I hate to be in line behind you, Pete, but I'm right there. I'm in your slipstream. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm either doing a long lap penalty or I'm having to change bikes uh, last minute because I'm going for a Lacious Bargro. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the next two are going to... Keep real, the in Aprilia. Yeah, real flip around and Vinales will be there to support. Right, those are locked well, in now. Better, better, better ask our, um, our customers exactly who they think as well. Well, then. exactly. Lock them in now. You don't get a second chance. This is the time to lock in who your title winner is is let us know in the comments below and we'll, we'll count them up see is it fabio peco aleish is, is an air still in it realistically like can he actually still do it points wise well, who knows like yeah well but hey it's moto gp anything can happen let us know I, and we should I, I suppose we should say that is one reason ducati have given for not blatantly instructing him let's say is that he is still mathematically in mm. with a chance of the of the title maybe that will be the point at which they say okay Stop. we've given you free reign yeah and then as Keith says how does he respond to that when it when it's inevitable it's hard to imagine there won't be hard team orders mm, mm. at least in the final round well it's going to be uh not just an exciting weekend i think it's going to be an exciting finish four rounds left of this 2022 moto gp world championship do not miss any bit of it make sure you're tuned in across crash.net for all the very latest news and analysis across the week uh, and in the build-up to this weekend's race and we'll be back with you next week as always get your questions in leave them in the comments section or tweet instagram and facebook us just search crash moto gp and please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as well and we'll see you right back here next week bye-bye here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.